Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, a student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series that explains how different fabrics are made. We're going back to basics and asking industry insiders questions like, what are the production processes behind different fabrics? Who are the players involved? What are their incentives? And more. Because it's hard to have a conversation about how to make a material better or how to make a garment better if we don't understand how it's made in the first place. On this episode, I go back to my conversation from November 2021 with Hilman Tui, Vice President of International Clothing Enterprise, PFG, and its subset, Bombex. PFG has a long history of producing for brands like Eileen Fisher, with factories across mainland China and Hong Kong for textile production, dyeing, weaving, cut and sew, and logistics. Bombix was formed in 2018 with a focus on regenerative silk production and transforming the way silk is produced, traded, and consumed. Their Nanchang Kafeng facility, NCKF, is located in the northeast of China's Sichuan province. Bombix is on a mission to do everything from dirt to fabric and beyond. We end up talking quite a bit about sericulture, which is the process of gathering the silkworms, which grow on mulberry trees. Their cocoons are then harvested, treated, and unwound into the long filaments that are ultimately used to make silk yarns. Hillman tells me more about where the idea of Bombix came from and the process, benefits, and barriers within regenerative silk production. Hilmund, let's start with your personal story and how you even ended up in the world of apparel manufacturing. Okay. I'd like to think that I was born into it. The Umbrella Company is owned by my father. And I think right when I was born, or not long after I was born, that's when the company started working with Eileen Fisher. And that's sort of, that's the beginnings of the whole company. But I sort of, I'm almost the same age as, as the company. And when I was very young, as the company was growing, along with Eileen Fisher, along with the sustainability concepts, my father would take me to the stores and look at the product on the shelves and, and on the racks and say, look. The Eileen Fisher stores. Like, I mean, I mean department stores. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, department stores that had the Eileen Fisher product or, you know, whatever product before that we were making. And he was like, behind this garment, I know it sounds sort of showy and all drama, like behind this garment, there's actually, no, but he was telling me that, in order for this garment to have gotten here, it had passed so many different levels of production. It had crossed so many pairs of hands. It had touched so many worlds and lives before you see it here. So it's not just about how nice it looks on this hanger. This actually affects so much more of the world than you know. That was one of the mm -hmm. things that he taught me from, from, from when I was very, very young. And of course, afterward, he started teaching me about things like quality and production and so forth. And then about... Six years ago, he was like, it's time, come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah. So I went to school in Toronto. I went to Ryerson for communications. I went to Canada actually when I was five. So I grew up there. And in my time there, I remember learning about a recycling bin. And I remember learning about these concepts slowly. And then coming back six years ago to actually be fully immersed into the world of fashion. It was, I mean, as much as my father told me that it was a whole world and it was a whole universe and it touched so many lives, I 
really you couldn't believe it until you see it with your own eyes. It is so vast. It is so very okay. vast. It's great. so many people that it touches. I'm about to release something that touches on that, but it is huge. And so I was like, this is my chance. This is my yeah. chance. I thought I was going to change the world when I was young. I was like, I'm going to do something. I'm going to invent something that's going to change the world. <laughs> I realized very quickly that that wasn't going to happen. I'm just not that kind of guy. But I also realized after coming into this industry that I also had the chance to change the lives of maybe not each and every one, but a lot of the workers that work with us, a lot of the farmers that you know we're working with now, a lot of the people along the supply chain that we work with, and they each have their own respective worlds. And I think that's enough for me. I think if I can do that, that's good. Before we talk about Bombix, can you just give a little bit of context for how the company is structured and what PFG is versus these entities underneath PFG of which Bombix is one? Because I think that's important to understand as we sort of talk through the origins of Bombix. So yeah, so the two companies, so under the mother umbrella PFG, uh, there's Bombix and then there's NCKF. Actually, NCKF came first. So PFG was a trading company a little over 25 years ago or so. And one of the main customers, the major customer for PFG over the past 20 years or so was Eileen Fisher. And so mm -hmm. if you know Eileen Fisher, you know the way that they approach sustainability and social responsibility. So a lot of what the company has done had already included sustainability and social responsibility, but mainly as hoops to jump through to get orders to fulfill you know, the customer's requirements. And then the company was starting to get some pressure from the customer regarding the pricing because the facilities that the company had built over the years were along the coastline, as well as the partner facilities that the company worked with all along the coastline. And obviously, over the years, the wages started to rise along the coastline. And so one of the ways that the company thought to remedy that or mitigate that was to move further inland as opposed to going offshore. And one of the reasons was that you know, we found that a lot of our, our workers were actually from inland. They sort of, they traveled to the coastline because that's where all the, the factories were at the time. They work, you know, the year and then for Chinese New Year, they go home. And we were looking at one of our facilities in, in Zhuhai, found that a lot of the, the workers were from Sichuan. So when we were looking to move more inland, we looked at Sichuan as a place and we found that the standard of the living, the cost of living there was cheaper and the wages were actually cheaper. And so the company decided, okay, we're going to build the facility there. We're going to move all our workers back home. We're going to bring the work to the workers as opposed to the other way around and also benefit from the cheaper wages that are there. And this is right around the time when I joined the company about five years ago. Right. So you are on the coast. You decide about five to eight years ago to move inland mm -hmm. uh, for a whole host of reasons. How do you go from that? Because I assume that when you were producing before for Eileen Fisher and other companies, you weren't only making silk and also that you were only doing at that stage cut and sew. So correct me if I've gotten it wrong. So how do you go from that to deciding to set up a dirt to fabric silk production facility or company rather? Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, at some point, at some point over the years, I think it must have been like maybe 12, 12 to 15 years ago. I'm not exactly sure on the dates, but it was right around 12 to 15 years ago. We built a dye house, also coastline in Suzhou. And again, also from the requirements or I guess encouragement. I wasn't there for those conversations, so I don't know exactly the word I'm supposed to use, but it was sort of like this thing that we pioneered with Eileen Fisher where we got blue sign for the dyeing facility 
the dye house. And so at that point, we were, we were buying raw material and dyeing our raw material and then sending it to our facility to be cut and sewn. About like eight years ago, when we were thinking about this new facility in Sichuan, right at that time, I mean, it just so happened that over 70, 80% of our production was actually silk. And so a lot of our material was silk. It was sort of one of those high value items we were doing a lot of. I mean, it was almost as if the stars had aligned because when we went to Sichuan, we also found out that it was the traditional home of silk where we decided to build our facility inside Nanchong. It's the legendary sort of birthplace or discovery place of silk. And I mean, you, you put the two and two together, it was almost as if the universe wanted us to do this. You know, we were doing that much silk, we're moving our facility there anyway, and we also wanted to control a particular raw material from the early stages. Again, at the beginning, it was about a margin thing. It was about a cost thing. Because when we looked at the traditional way of, you know, the, the traditional supply chain for silk, there are middlemen between each stage of production. So say, just from the farm to the cocoon processing and filament extraction, there's at least one level of middlemen that then buy from the farmers and then they resell to the facility that then goes to process it. And then from the filament extraction to the dye house, again, another middleman there that's making their money on top of that. And then from the dye house, then to, I don't know, printing or then to cut and sew, if it goes right to cut and sew, then there's another middleman there. And then from the factory to the customer, then there's probably a few middlemen there. See, all of that stuff, originally, the idea was to cut them all out. We were going to do the entire thing ourselves, which means a whole bunch more margin that originally we were going to be able to reduce the cost for our customers and get more business that way. But again, as I came into the company, I was like, wait, hold on, guys. If we're doing this whole thing ourselves, wouldn't it be great if we could do it a different way? Wouldn't it be great if we could do it in a way that other people aren't doing it? Like, for example, sustainably? I don't know. Just throwing it out there. I mean, that meeting was tough for me because it was... Um, it was a concept that wasn't accepted or understood by a lot of the existing management at the time. And, and I get it because sustainable is something that in their minds, it costs money. It costs a lot of money. So it was hard to convince. But I mean, I'm happy to tell you that I, I was just up there. First of all, that's why my hair is like this and I look like a homeless man. But it, far it was, from it, I would say. I, I appreciate, I appreciate I, I'm not used to having my hair this long. But it's not very long. <laughs> it's much shorter normally. It is much shorter. But no, I mean, I think they're seeing it because over the past, oh, I don't know, three years, the Chinese government has spoken more and more more openly and more vocally about the sustainability issues that we're facing as a country, you know, in China, because that's where our supply chain is. I mean, it's not just a national problem. It's obviously, it's a global problem. And we're all talking about it in our industry. And I think anybody, I think everybody's talking about it in their industries. I mean, in the motor vehicle industry, they've been talking about it for a long time. I mean, you have the new regulations now that are really putting the hammer down on the products that they make. And it's a matter of time. It really is a matter of time before it gets to our industry. But I think we're running out of time. It's not about stopping the impact that you have on the environment. It's about trying to reverse it now. It's about trying not just to limit your impact, but to actually create some positive impact. And so with our sericulture project, when we were first talking about, oh, we're going to go talk to the government, we're going to get this farmland, we're going to do sericulture, this is what we're going to do. I was like, no, we got to do organic. Sorry, there's, there's no argument. We must do organic. And obviously, they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, okay, you can do a little bit. But after that, I was in India. And um, I was speaking to somebody from Patagonia. 
Rick Ridgeway, I think his name was, at a conference. And I told him that this is what we're doing. Isn't it great? This is what we're doing. If there's anything you can tell me, if there's any sort of hints or advice that you can give me, because agriculture isn't, I mean, I'm out of my league here. I'm out of my depth. And he said, you know, they're looking at something called regenerative agriculture for their, I think it was cotton farms at the time that he said he was looking at it. And he told me to go on the website and he told me to take a look at all this stuff. And I said, you know what? This is great. This is absolutely incredible because this is a step above organic. I mean, I thought that organic was the golden standard. Turns out it's not. It's not just about limiting your impact. It's about regenerating the land so that it can you know, sequester more carbon. It, it can help solve our GHG emission issues, our problems. I mean, I personally really think that this is the way. I think this is the way to help us not just limit our emissions from, I mean, if, I don't want to say selfishly, but more sort of if I'm thinking in, in a micro level, the emissions that we make from our garment manufacturing facilities and all the other facilities that we're going to make in our vertical supply chain, I think that our farms can help not just limit that, but also reverse that just in the way that we plan and plant our crops and our farms. And so that's sort of where the whole idea of Bombix came from. For people who are listening and who have maybe never, ever thought about how silk is made, could you describe maybe a little bit about the, I don't know if the right word is conventional silk production Mm -hmm. versus, you know, what exactly does regenerative silk production look like? What are the production steps and processes that are involved in doing that? I mean, so for us in Bombix, we split it up into two parts, just for Bombix. So this is, we're not counting the cut and sew bit right now. It's just Mm -hmm. from, from dirt to fabric. We cut it up into two parts, the production bit, which is everything after the farm. So as soon as the the cocoon gets collected and then the filament starts to get real, that's where production starts up until the end of the fabric. Now this part, the production bit, I mean, it's fairly similar to, to any other kind of production, if I'm honest. And the solutions that we have to take are just as creative as if we were looking at any other facility that were producing silk. Like for example, at our garment facility, we've covered the roofs with solar panels. That's something that we plan to do with all of these production facilities, with the wastewater discharge in the dye houses that we have to build. It's the same thing. We have to worry about the pH levels, the chemicals that come out. We have to worry about the wastewater treatment facilities that have to come with the dyeing and printing facilities. That's all the same thing. You know, The GOTS certifications, how they look at these facilities, it's the same thing as with any other facility that's producing any other fabrics. I mean, the one thing that might be different with other materials might be the degumming stage where we have to get rid of the saracen because the way that consumers today conceive silk is silk without the saracen. It's like this really nice, shiny, soft, drapey material. But with the saracen, it sort of feels like a chintzed curtain fabric because it's that glue, right? Yeah. So that's the production bit. I mean, we're going to get the certifications, but with agriculture bit, that's where the biggest changes are happening. With sericulture, with the planting of mulberry trees, with the rearing of silkworms. I mean, all of the agricultural issues that you see in, say, apple farming or farming any other food or any other organic material like cotton and linen, I mean, those issues still apply to silk. It's the tilling of the land. It's the use of you know heavy machinery. It's the emissions that those emit. It's destroying the soil in a way that you release the carbon back into the atmosphere. It's all of these things. It's using pesticides. It's using chemical and synthetic fertilizers and synthetic nutrients that sort of drain the land. 
of biodiversity, it's monocropping and not allowing the land to sort of build bacterial cultures within the soil. It's all of these things. All of these things are the same in sericulture as it would be in any other farm you might find in, I don't know, middle America or wherever. It's the same thing. And so when we talk about regenerative agriculture, there's a lot of overlap in some of the principles that we follow as with other farmers might follow, say, things like terrace farming. We would choose specifically lands on sides of hills so that we can utilize the rainfall as natural irrigation. But what we have to do is we have to build these terrace farms so that the nutrients in the topsoil don't get washed away. The nutrients stay within the topsoil. Intercropping and rotational cropping. This is huge for us. This is massive. I think that this is, at this stage, one of the most important things that we have to do because prior to bombix coming into those lands. It was monocropped. It was basically shove as many mulberry trees as you can into this land. And if those trees aren't going fast enough or big enough, shove some more chemicals in there so that the leaves get bigger and they grow tall and they grow faster. That's just not the way to go because eventually that land will be rendered useless to grow anything at all. There's just aren't, there just isn't enough nutrients in there to grow anything because you're continually feeding these fake nutrients in the soil. The soil will stop producing these nutrients by itself, and then your mulberry trees won't even be able to exist there anymore. So with rotational cropping and intercropping, what we do is we plant numerous crops at the same time, with our mulberry tree being the main crop. We plant these other crops between them, things like potatoes and peanuts and soybeans, because each crop, including the mulberry tree, will deplete and release various nutrients to and from the soil. And these nutrients within the soil they actually create a situation where various different types of bacteria can grow and thrive within the soil. And these you know, bacteria, they feed off of the carbon that these crops will then absorb from the atmosphere. And their sole job is to make the nutrients in the soil more, I think the word is bioavailable, but basically more easily accessible by the plants on top of the soils so that they grow you know, even stronger. And the different crops, what we do is we look at the various crops and the different nutrients they deplete and release back into the soil. And we do like a speed dating thing with our mulberry trees. <laughs> so if our, our mulberry trees are depleting a particular nutrient, we'll plant another crop in there to then replenish that particular nutrient. And if we find that there's, you know, particular nutrients that they both deplete, then we will rotate that intercrop out and plant another crop back in to then replenish that particular nutrient. And with each crop that goes in, it comes with this, you know, I talked about the bacteria, but it also comes with this universe that it lives in. And then it begins to work with the other universes that exist on a farm to create like a group of micro ecosystems that sort of congregate into an, a larger agro ecosystem that protects itself from, you know, agricultural illnesses, you know, unstable weather because they grow healthier. And then on top of that, we do things like we use this organic limestone ash to paint the tree trunks of our mulberry trees. And for some reason, I don't know exactly why, because I'm not you know, a physicist or a scientist or a farmer. <laughs> I don't know exactly why, but I know that the farmers used limestone ash to prevent bugs from climbing up onto the trees. And I found that there was an organic mm -hmm. version of it. And so we're going to buy the organic version of it, of course. And then mm -hmm. these bugs, as they stay on the ground, we deploy our bioorganic pest control. And these are chicken, geese, ducks that then eat up these bugs. And then when they go caca, <laughs> then they fertilize the land. It's, you know, kind of circular. There's so many things that we have to do with regenerative agriculture. I saw on your website too that the silk that Bombix produces is sold for a price that's similar mm -hmm. to conventional silk. And so 
My question for you is, why doesn't every silk manufacturer, or maybe that's not even the word because you're also you know, doing the agricultural side, mm-hmm. but why doesn't everyone do it this way? Okay, it is a heavy, heavy investment. The processes that were the concepts that we're injecting into uh, what we do, I mean, that all costs money or opportunity cost because the way that sericulture has been done, like I said, is just shove as many trees as you can into one plot of land and then shove as many chemicals as you need to make more. That's one way of doing things. If we're transitioning into organic and getting the certifications to prove that we are organic, the crops no longer have the help or I can't call it help, but unfortunately, they don't have that boost of the synthetic materials that used to be put mm-hmm. in. And so there's that transition period where they lose money. And I don't think that anybody's willing to take the three years of losing money to do this sort of stuff. And one way to mitigate that is the regenerative agriculture principles that we're doing. But that also takes time. That takes time for the land to help itself. And on top of that, I mean, another way to then mitigate these costs is if you control the whole supply chain. And then it becomes a question of, you know, why aren't more companies trying to control the entire supply chain? Well, it's very simple. It's money. It's it's a lot of risk. It's a lot of risk as well. It's a lot of risk as well today. Sure, you maybe cut out different steps and your margins, you know, you capture more of the margin for yourself, but you have a lot more fixed costs, I imagine, right? Exactly. I mean, especially today, it's not like your business is guaranteed. Does Bombix produce enough silk now to supply 100% of the NCKF cut and sew that you're doing or is it are you still using like a mix because i imagine that reaching scale is also something that's a challenge right yeah so at this very moment because the middle bits aren't built yet so for example the filament extraction the yarn spinning the fabric weaving these parts are done by our partner facilities Mm. that we found close to our farms and we picked them specifically for various reasons But because these things aren't built yet, it's hard to say yes or no. By calculations, yes. By calculations, our cocoons that come out of the farms are more than enough to satisfy the production at our NCKF. But because those cocoons will then get sold to various facilities and we sort them based on which facilities have what certifications and so forth, and then we buy them back, we buy the fabric back from them. So they basically, either it's like a CM thing, a CM deal that we have with them, or we fully sell it to them and then then we fully buy back their material. It's, um, that's where we're at now. Is it kind of like the challenge you see with cotton, where it's like cotton is grown in lots of different ways and, you know, some are doing regenerative, some are doing organic, whatever, and then it gets sold and consolidated at different levels. And then that's where it sort of gets hard to trace. Is that what you, is that what you're talking about or am I misunderstanding? Well, yes and no. I actually, you didn't misunderstand, you understand fully well. And then some more, um, cause I mean, with this, <laughs> see, not many people would think about this issue right away, but. It for sure is an issue because let's say, for example, I have a portion of my land, a huge portion of my land that's organic, and then another huge portion of my land that's that's non-organic, one that's certified and one that's not certified. If I sell output from both of these parts of the land to one facility and the facility isn't doing their sorting properly, Mm -hmm. then I can't tell you 100% if there's any organic material in the fabric that comes out of that facility in this particular batch. I can't tell you 100%. Is that why you want to do it yourself eventually too? Well, yes and no. Yes, because when we go on to get our further certifications, one of the requirements obviously is traceability and the proper and diligent sorting of organic and non-organic material, the the deliberate separation of it. I mean, some of the requirements go into the lubricant that they use within the machine that processes the silk. But also because these facilities that we choose are 
the best that we've seen in various aspects. And we still feel like there's a better way. We still feel like these facilities could be built in a better way. It's not to blame them. They're doing great. But for example, I mean, I don't see the solar panels on any of them right now that are making silk. It is. It just isn't a requirement from customers yet to have that sort of uh, equipment. And that costs money. That costs, that costs money that there's an ROI involved in yeah. that. That's one example. I've heard a lot about cotton too, is that it's about understanding the risk profile at sort of each step of the chain and understanding, you know, what the incentives are and therefore what it would mean. Like you said, it's not as simple as like, oh, people just aren't interested or don't want to do it. You know, you have to understand what the risk profile is. Right. I mean, that's what Bombix is, wants to represent. What we want to do is we want to make aspirational silk. And what I mean by aspirational silk is what we think the golden standard of silk should be, not just as a material, but in the manufacturing of it. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.